This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Hi, this is Arjun. And I really enjoy these podcast conversations because these are conversations with incredible thought leaders from all walks of life, from all over the world. And what I realized is, is the different paths and the different journeys to success. And also success is defined differently by different leaders, which open our minds. Today, I'm very fortunate to have a conversation with Sri Srinath, who is my VIP guest. Srinath is the founder and president of Vivekananda Yoga University, Vayu, the world's first yoga university outside of India. He has 40 years of experience as an academician and multiple academic administrative positions in electrical computer engineering department at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio and served as the director of Case UNESCO Genie program. He was the president of Seva International, working in areas of disaster recovery, education, and development. Under his leadership, Seva raised $70 million with over $50 million in cash in 2021 for COVID relief in India and worldwide. I've been fortunate to get to know Srinath and work with him. And what I have seen is his leadership, there are three incredibly fascinating dimensions. Dimension one is he always has a clear eye on vision and that too at the biggest picture of vision. If I have not seen too many leaders who can see that far ahead on what is the bigger opportunity that is there. The second part is to create a path for every individual and empowering them. And third is inclusiveness. Whether it is a Zoom call to anywhere else, I love the way Srinath includes every person on the team to make them realize this is their organization. And based on all this, you all can figure out that I'm really excited to welcome to Secrets to Win Big, Sri Srinath. Srinath, welcome to Secrets to Winbay. Thank you, Arjun. Great pleasure to be here and interviewed by somebody I also hold in very high esteem. Thank you. So first thing, I just want to go into academics. And, you know, you are a very different kind of an academician. On one side, you have the highest level of academic excellence. But on the other side, also, all through, you have looked at the impact of academics. You have built relationships with major global organizations like UNESCO. So what got you into academics and what got you into thinking somewhat non-traditional to take academics impact to the next level? Yeah, uh, the first one is easy to answer. I was an accidental academic, never planned to be one. And uh, in 1987, when I graduated uh, at that time as a foreign student, most of my work, I was working in an area called space robotics. And uh, most of them were the jobs were in the uh, industry and it was closely guarded. And as a foreign citizen, I couldn't get in. That was an accidental academic. But the moment I got a taste of it, I wouldn't let go. The major reason is the intellectual freedom that one has as an academic to explore different avenues, to create something when there could be nothing. So that uh, intellectual freedom that is both in terms of uh, research and uh, uh, as well as in teaching. Okay, for example, I, uh, I invented a course 32 years ago called Global Issues. Being an engineer teaching a Global Issues course, we talk about um, uh, world politics, we talk about countries, we talk about their issues and we use engineering approaches to model them, to write them into equations and then you know, how, look into the future. This is uh, one of the areas which uh, I think as an academic I could do. 
because it was outside, it would have been very difficult to do. That's when uh, my work with uh, UNESCO, World Bank, United Nations, that's when it took off. In 1990, I wrote a book on global warming. Okay, and uh, people were more honest then, and they used to call it global warming, not climate change. So now let me go to another chapter. I'm totally changing gears. This has been very close to your heart. Is Seva International. And I'm just looking for look at Seva from just outside. That this was an organization where if we look at you know rankings about nonprofit donations in this country, over two years it went from 690 to top 10. What was the secret? of taking the organization like literally fast forward and jumpstart, but more importantly, to keep the culture and the integrity of the organization during this fast phase transition. Yeah, uh, for over a decade, I was the president and we had a national team, which grew from literally two people, one a finance guy, one myself, to um, a, uh, maybe about nearly 100 people on the national team. Now, the characteristics of SEVA that we put in and the way we developed it was that um, we had no paid executive. Okay, now that may seem strange, you know, for an organization not to have a paid executive. Uh, we didn't have any paid executive. We did not have a headquarters. We were like a bunch of maybe four or five chapters at the time because it's a volunteer-based organization. And we wanted to keep that characteristic. You know, generally, uh, the allure for a nonprofit organization, especially working in the kind of the area that we work on, which is uh, disaster uh, recovery, okay, wherein, uh, you know, like for example, in Houston, where you're currently from, okay, the Hurricane Harvey, it was a major impact. You were at the, not a very large organization at the time in terms of revenue, but our people were able to rescue 689 people, our volunteers on the ground, okay? So uh, how did we do it? I think we inspired them through the mission, okay? It is that, uh, you know, we are going to serve humanity. We are not going to worry about what color, treat, uh, whatever that they came from. And it is that, uh, uh, you know, through our volunteerism, we want to change the world. Okay, so that was really what the focus was. And people got attracted to it uh, because rather than taking a path wherein if you look at an NGO and then revenue would be like any company, revenue would be important. We decided rather than building uh, the revenue, we need to build human resources. We need to build volunteers. So the focus was on more, more on building the human being, the capacity of the human being, rather than going after money because it was the easiest. I was a, as you pointed out, an academic, uh, you know, in a research university, what do you do? You write proposals and you get money, you pay the graduate student, pay yourself. And then, uh, you know, then the next big thing comes in a few years and you shift, yes. That's not what we wanted uh, Seva International to be. Wanted it to be like, uh, we are focused on this mission. And uh, for instance, let us take uh, disaster recovery. We have usually different phases, which did not turn out to be true in COVID, but uh, generally you have a period wherein there is rescue uh, will go on. Uh, that is usually uh, three to five days. And then three to five months is relief. And uh, then three to six to five years is rehabilitation. These are the thing, standard phases. So we wanted more of our people to be focusing on how we can help the beneficiaries rather than writing proposals, getting a lot of money and spending it. Okay, so that is what you will see as a, as a difference. And uh, when I first started, I realized that I've been an academic for at that point in time, uh, maybe about uh, uh, 20 years plus uh, 25 years. And what I did not have the skills to run an organization, a nonprofit organization. So I went uh, to one of my colleagues in management and asked him, like, tell me what are the courses that I can take, I can build up. I, I'm a PhD, a big deal, I can learn everything. He went through a list of courses and he said, nursery, you have to do another degree in nonprofit management. 
and I took it uh, uh, for myself. First, I made sure that I got permission from my wife because I would not be socially available and jumped into it. That training helped me a lot. That uh, told me one of the most important things that I learned, which is mission creep, okay? Which is that it is very easy to let yourself into saying, oh, that cause is important because there is money in it and so on. Rather than chasing money, we chased human beings. We built their capacity. And using that structure, now only the, the people who are paid in SEVA are only the ones who are absolutely necessary. They could be a project uh, that is focusing on, let's say, a developmental project. We are, by the way, we are working in 16 different countries right now. At that point in time, we were working in two uh, when our national team took over first. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, to manage, uh, uh, when you are there, there are like maybe about four or five chapters now we have. 43 chapters across the United States. And so all this growth happened. That is more what I count rather than the revenue because that tells us we are in this for the long run because money will come. You know, when the great work is happening, money will automatically come and we were proven right. It took a little time. And uh, most importantly, the part about excellence, whatever that we do, we want to be the best at it. And uh, what does it mean to be the best in NGO a space? You have certain rating agencies that are looking at you and you want to ensure that you are on the top of that. For example, there are Charity Navigator, there's Great Nonprofits, there's Better Business Bureau, uh, GuideStar. So these are the different ones. And then we made sure that we reached out to this organization and said, that, what is it that uh, would make our organization the best organization? Not necessarily looking at the ratings. So the focus is uh, was on uh, human capacity building rather than uh, the, uh, uh, you know, chasing after uh, revenue, which we said it will come automatically and which it did. You're on mute, Tarjun. Suddenly you went silent. Yeah, sorry, my microphone wasn't working with any oh, okay. part, so yeah. no worries. So, you know, as I was listening to you, the thing that started hitting me was a few nuggets. One is inspiration comes from the shared mission and buying into the mission. Because in a nonprofit for a volunteer who is waking up after his or her very long week of professional work and then family and faith, everything else, the heart has to drive you. And that's the part where I love that. The second I love is very important. And that's something I think becomes a bigger lesson for a lot of nonprofits is focus on the right KPI and which is the leading KPI, not dollars, because many a time we get dollars and then if we don't know what to do with it, it really doesn't work. And I have seen even with alumni organizations, you get a lot of money but if you don't know how, and that's the part where I really love what you talked about is build the human resource equity. And the third thing, what I really liked was that be the best in what you do as measured by industry standard external measures. Like me talking about my daughter being the coolest, which she is, really doesn't matter. It's the external evaluation. But on, all top, on top of everything, what also fascinated me is Many a time, you as a professor could have very easily said, I know everything. But you pausing to invest in learning on what you felt you needed to know really helped you jumpstart long-term. And I think that's a huge lesson as we start going through. And, you know, I just want to digress just for a second is when I was five or six years old, my grandma in Kolkata used to take me to missionaries of charity and especially the annual presentations about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, her presentations used to be just no PowerPoint, of course, those days, but all she talked about over five minutes, maybe five or six sentences, she would thank everyone for giving her an opportunity to impact every child and every elderly. And then she would say, it's your call. You guys choose how many kids and elderly people we need to help, and we will be ready to do that. She never asked for money. Her whole focus was one person, 
one child, one elderly. And I really love the similarity on which you have built the selflessness. Now, here's a thing that really fascinates me and I'm very curious. And I'm looking totally from an organization point of view, from two cities, 46 cities. How do you make sure that the mission, vision, connection remains the same and it's the same Seva International in every city, everywhere you make an impact as you grow this fast, that too with people who are working unpaid as volunteers? It is we are very clear with our volunteers. We tell them there are three priorities that you should be looking at. First is family. Second is uh, uh, your career. And Seva is a distant third. We very openly say that. So that way, when a volunteer takes certain responsibilities, because you know, they, as you said, it's a volunteer-driven organization. Uh, you know, everybody above the director. Okay, so you have the VPs, you have the uh, the uh, executive. Uh, you know, nobody is paid. Project, uh, uh, you know, uh, project directors are not paid. So all those things are taken up by volunteers. And when we put them in, when we take them, we train them for a few years. From the time that they're a volunteer, we train them, we give them opportunities. And this is a great uh, thing And people who volunteer with us know that they are growing as a person. So that is their take back. It is not just that, you know, not, not just, but not that uh, you are helping others and you're gaining a, a lot of uh, good feeling inside you. Yes, that's true. But to be professional, we need to ensure that they follow certain standards. And most of the uh, people uh, uh, that uh, we have in Seva, which is a Hindu faith-based organization, uh, you know, they uh, may may not be religious, but they really want to help the world, and they hold their Hindu faith, in which inspires them to serve the world without expecting anything in return. So the uh, you know serving others and getting the joy out of this is the payback so that's what we emphasize and okay. then we also ensure that they have adequate training so there are steps in which you know we move a volunteer through their rankings to the level that they could be somebody who could be in charge of a national project so like that so we step them through and it takes years to do that and uh, then uh, somebody one of the places we would look for opening a chapter would be that, you know, there are people who have been trained who are in multiple different cultural organizations or professional organizations who are retiring from their presidentship or chairmanship. We would go and approach them and say, hey, you know, uh, how about we interest you in something in Seva? So they are already formed in a sense. They just need to learn our method. That's all. So based on summarizing this whole part, if you were invited to say the world's largest nonprofit convention and you were given one minute to share two things every nonprofit leader must do, one or two things or three, your choice, and a few traps to stay away from, what would you share with all future nonprofit leaders? The first thing I tell them is to ensure that you know everybody in the organization, every volunteer. So that means that you probably, especially in a spread like Seva, you need to probably keep traveling to meet the people one-on-one. -on -one. And that's an important thing. It is not simply that you see them uh, uh, you know, once uh, in your national convention, but it's very important to go and to meet people. So that's one thing, know your people. That is the key thing. And uh, thing, that you need to keep away from is mission creep. It is very simple. Like for example, we were working in the California wildfire issue, you know, that spanned over a few years. We were building tiny homes that, you know, people who lost homes, we built tiny homes and uh, on a Google parking lot in San Francisco and move that to near Sacramento where the fire has happened. So in that process, one of our uh, volunteers got very, uh, um, uh, you know, called me excitedly and said, 
you know, uh, there is a million dollars for you to apply for some, uh, for a, for a, uh, there's a proposal that's coming out in a million bucks. It's very easy, you can do that. I said, what's it about? And said, well, wildfires, you're already working there. And, uh, uh, you know, these are stranded animals. Can we take care of them? And there's a million dollars in it. Now that's mission creep. Yes, we are helping, and, but our focus is on humans. Not to say anything about animals. I'm a pet lover. Uh, we have a few cats at home and all that. But that is thing. Those are the kinds of the things you need to stay away from. Unnecessary traps. And we initially, we it was very easy for me to write proposals, get money, and build a team that would do that. So rather than that, we focused on people. Get the people, and gradually the money will come. And now we have a cell in Seva that is going to focus on proposals and getting money and all that. For example, uh, during Hurricane Harvey, we got uh, uh, you know uh, a, some amount of money. Uh, that uh, uh, the main thing is to serve 640 people who may have become homeless or have other kinds of problems. And we serve with the same amount of money 2,500 people. That is delivery that I'm looking at. It is not the amount of money. It is how much you can stretch the dollar to serve more beneficiaries. So this is what we drill into our volunteers to say that, how can we stretch? Wow. And, you know, Srinath, as you were talking about, what I realized was the mission creep that you talked about. This is beyond nonprofits, because to me, when I talk to super CEOs like you, and it's really bizarre, it feels like all of them are brothers or sisters with the same family values. Like every super CEO knows very clearly what not to work on. It's just like having a food allergy. If you were allergic to peanuts, you right away say no to peanuts. That's the level of clarity super CEOs have. And I really, really appreciate you bringing that with that example. You love pets. But that does not mean you change your organization's effort and take resources away from the core mission. I love that. Yeah. So now no, the, the, uh, in, in general, volunteers do get excited about things. And then, you know, because they are volunteers, they're not bound to you. How to make them into a force? How to make them into a single force, the edge of the sphere? That's what I think most of the time that we spend. We work with human beings, you know, we, our people, we care for them. Uh, and uh, we always, whenever we put a project together, we have at least uh, uh, a two level, maybe three level backup because a volunteer, even at the leadership level can drop out anytime and there won't be any gap. So that is one way we figured out that way we'll not have to worry about, oh, is the project going to flounder or going to go forward? I think that also connects to putting the volunteer first, because the way you talked about not just mentioning, but reinforcing and living, family first, career second, and then seva, and putting the different layers and levels of support, I really, you know, helps sustain on a long term. So now I want to get to Vayu, Vivekananda Yoga University, and it just feels like from hindsight, that all your life, all your career was converging into Vayu. A super academician and a super nonprofit leader takes all his skills to take Vayu. So can you share a little bit about Vayu's vision and what got you excited that you will put every resource you have, all your heart, mind, soul, body into Vayu to take it to the goal and beyond. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the history. So if you understand the history, then uh, you'll get a better view. Um, I was not the visionary on this one. The visionary actually or a set of three people in Los Angeles 25 years ago sat together and said, you know, how do we uh, take yoga forward? not in the sense of yoga uh, as a, what is popular in North America is uh, mostly only about 120th, which is the physical aspect of yoga. The major part of yoga is the control of mind and body. Now, how do you, you know, are you able to harness both of them towards 
fulfillment in life and that part of it uh, is what uh, the studies in yoga or 2500 years ago the first uh, uh, it was canonized by a uh, sage called patanjali or who you today's uh, would call him a nobel laureate you know who wrote this uh, uh, encyclopedia uh, i mean uh, not encyclopedia it is a very short set of aphorisms uh, uh, that formed the basis of yoga so in 1997 when these three people got together one was a very successful philanthropist another was a social worker and the third was at that time a well known yoga guru but he came from a very non traditional background he was a scientist first uh, working at nasa he had an epiphany he used to teach at imperial college before he had an epiphany in his life in 1971 decided to head back to india to start and 1927 these people met and they said can we start a yoga university that was a novel concept because there were no yoga universities left in or started in the world so there are a lot of yoga teachers yoga gurus but not a university where you have formal education so they at that point decided there should be one and it should be in india because uh, in india there will be more acceptance so they decided to start one it took them about 5 years to start it uh, in india that was 2002 and uh, then um, in uh, uh, 2014 i was roped in and said you know can we start a yoga university in america so maybe the time had come and uh, you know the uh, university in india was now a successful university uh, which has uh, you know had a decent amount of enrollment they had uh, yoga degrees at uh, undergraduate level at the masters level and the phd level so there was good amount of research that was taking place so they thought why not bring this to america when i was roped in um you know we started work and then it took us about 7 years to get license in california had it been another state we could have probably gotten it less than one or two years but california is something that we wanted to wait for because it is a, one of the highest standards including new york and uh, so in 2020 we uh, got our uh, uh, you know license uh, in uh, for starting the university and we are very focused we decided that, okay we are looking for teaching training people in the esoteric aspects of yoga including the physical uh, you know manifestation the physical manifestation is turning yourself into a pretzel but why do you want to turn yourself into a pretzel okay and then uh, is it that you need to be so rigorous or is it something because in yoga uh, the it really says that you don't need to exert yourself beyond what you should beyond what your body says you always have to keep listening to your but unfortunately sometimes uh, people don't hear their body and they get into injuries okay this is something that is a very pet uh, uh, you know repetitive and we want to understand that in a much better way as we go on so we focused on yoga research okay which uh, is a new and upcoming area there are, uh, uh, you know researchers in stanford in uh, ucsf in uh, uh mit in harvard you name it in md anderson and uh, uh, houston and so on so these are people who are looking at yoga in the service of humanity okay at various aspect be it in prisons be it in police force be it in uh, uh, you know on a daily basis for children and so on and so on. so yoga research we have yoga therapy and yoga studies which is yoga philosophy these are the three things and then i was excited about the expansiveness of this and uh, uh, way back in 2014 we decided this will be an online program like we will have an online program with uh, some amount of face to face interaction so uh, by the time at uh, that time there were questions about really you want to do yoga uh, online uh, how will that you know i had way back in 1996 uh, through the unesco project i had uh, connected 15 universities around the world Uh, you know japan in russia in um, uh, europe in south america in uh, uh, sub saharan africa and so on 15 universities and we worked together on a project this is way before maybe a little bit at the time that internet was just starting to be popular so i had that uh, experience and that uh, put together and directed multiple online programs so i decided why don't we try this with you 
And today, after COVID, now, you know, the very fact that you and I are talking here uh, illustrates how it has become a commodity. The communication has improved and uh, the way the tools, various tools are there. And this is what we took advantage of. So I love that. And I love the way you showed me the three pillars. So now let me revisit some of these and ask you some very rapid fire questions. So these are micro answers. So I can compartmentalize these for the audience. Number one, what is the vision and mission of Bayou? Yeah, uh, the mission of Bayou, uh, let me go back to the vision. The vision is that we want to ensure that uh, we bring yoga and yoga practices to the world. Okay, that's really you know, a very short uh, uh, answer. So the mission is to ensure that those people who are aspiring to be yogis, that means practice of, uh, so we want to ensure that they have all the tools and in the service of humanity. Love that. So now expanding that, I want to go into each of the stakeholders, which I'll start with students, then I'll go into faculty, then I'll go into world. For each one, what is your promise? Like, what is your promise based on that to every student who considers and enrolls? Yeah, uh, see, uh, a student, they, we have identified there are two classes of students that would come. Okay, they would come because they are already into seeking. They want to look into themselves. They want to understand themselves. Uh, so that is one class of students. We call them the seekers. Okay, so they want to use yoga as a method. Okay, other people may use religion. They may use uh, other spiritual tools to do that. And here they want to use yoga as a way of accomplishing that. The other uh, set is people who are yoga enthusiasts and who have reached a level of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, reached a level of uh, uh, understanding okay that they say that okay i have done the physical part now i have to move forward because physical part gives you a certain aspect but when they understand yoga is for connecting the mind and the body and how the mind can control the body for instance uh, you know there is a particular meditation technique that Tibetan monks uh, follow, we call Jitumo. In Jitumo, the monk sits on a pile of snow and meditates. In half an hour, he'll be sitting in a puddle. He's able to increase the body temperature by two degrees. Okay, so this is the control of the mind over the body. Okay, but here there's a physical aspect of it, but it's more spiritual aspect is that to realize oneself, how to find fulfillment. And that is the part. So people come from this, uh, uh, towards these goals. And along the way, there may be certain people who are looking for, what do I do with yoga? How can it be practically helpful? And those are the ones that will become yoga therapists. So how to help others uh, using yoga, patients, I don't know whether it is a mental agony or uh, whether it is a physical ailment or a chronic disease like uh, uh, you know, diabetes. I myself know that in a span of six months, I was able to reduce my diabetes level, V1C3, from 8.4 to 6.2. That's um, now pre-diabetic, whereas I was a real diabetic at the time. So I know that even experimenting on myself, I can now see that. And we have plenty of data to prove that this, is, uh, uh, this works. So I like two parts to what you just shared is each student whether he's a yoga seeker or a yoga buff has his or her different personal journey and yoga yeah. the specific path of education at Vayu takes them further in their destination and the second part also what i loved is each one of these are using yoga to move forward in life and also impact and enrich the life of others, this also expands in their journey forward to make more impact, more significant impact and impact in more people's life. You also have gathered an incredible array of faculty members from all over the world. 
what's your commitment to faculty? Like, why should the best faculty, why are they choosing to come to YU? What's the, what's your commitment to them? Oh, primarily, academicians, teachers, they are best when they're teaching others. Because the best way, as they say, is to learn a subject is to teach it. The reason is a lot of things become clarity when you are expressing this to other people and especially students. Now, there is always that, uh, uh, you know, uh, drive that any researcher will have, any teacher will have. So what we went about doing is picking out the best researchers in this area rather than teachers, okay? Yes, there is a difference. Uh, but my experience is that if there is a, if a person is a great researcher, he'll be a great teacher too, because he has to explain it not only to his peers, but also uh, to others uh, in a very simple manner. And they'll be great communicators. So we pick the best researchers. And being a researcher means you're in the cutting edge of things. You are learning about how best to do whatever that you do and uh, uh, you know, and try to be curious throughout your life. You're curious, that's why you become a researcher. You're wondering, why does it work like this? Why should it work like this? Why not the other way? So these are the kinds of the things. And then, so we pick the best researchers around the uh, United States who are working in yoga related subjects. And then the only proposal we uh, uh, told them was here is a university which is online. And then you do not need to physically dislocate. You could be a part of our university and help our students learn. They could do it in two, uh, two ways, offering a course or, uh, and or doing research with our students. Okay, our students, we are very lucky. They're extraordinarily committed. Okay, and uh, uh, you know, if you look at their demographic, <coughs> the average age is 48, median is 51, the youngest is 29, and the oldest is 73. So wow. you can see that so this is like everyone. They, yeah, this is like they're looking at this as either a second career, career or for self-realization. And you have done that comes and you know, people have families, people have careers. And in spite of that, they are registering with our online uh, program. And so that is the uh, really the, uh, the uh, um, that, that's really their motivator. So as students, they give you 100%, maybe more, whatever that they can give, they'll give that. And as professors, teachers, we would love students who are committed, who ask questions all the time. And then whenever, when I give a lecture, at the end of it, if there are no questions, I know that I failed, okay? So this uh, is the motivation for the researchers to be part of why. And they know that, and they, once they teach, they understand the quality of the students that we have, which are highly committed and accomplished in their own, whether uh, they are physicians or whether they're attorneys or whether they're engineers who come. So we have a broad range of uh, uh, people who may or may not have had yoga training. And we don't expect anybody to have any yoga training when they come to us, okay? So we uh, teach them everything so at the master's level, so essentially your background, what background do you need to have? You can have any background. All we need for you to do is a good set of communication tools with you and to be curious. So now let's look at world. And before we get into your commitment and promise to the world, even in its early days, Bayou is getting noticed. And one of the things, the reason I say that was, you know, in India's version of who wants to be a millionaire. One of the top questions was about Bayou, which again tells me that, you know, sometimes we do things thinking we are great. It's only when we get noticed from outside by these organizations that really is a proof that we are on a path. So why should the entire world be aware and be excited about why you like what's the big promise of why you to the entire world yeah you know first of all when we look at our students what we tell them about our vision is that we want to build a healthy harmonious world through holistic yoga 
Okay, when we say that, then um, we are looking at not just uh, United States, we are looking at the world and we want to be the communicator. Yes, India has uh, in the local law is yoga is 5,000 years old because they found uh, you know, uh, medallions in the Indus Valley civilization, okay? With people doing yoga poses. So uh, when uh, we say that we are creating a yogic life path for you, for the welfare of humanity, now that is our mission. So when they hear that, they understand that we are giving them tools, we are giving them understanding, learnings on how to accomplish this mission and uh, how to uh, go after this vision wherein we build a healthy and harmonious world. So the whole world needs to understand, for example, all the tensions that we have in between various countries, we are seeing publicly the uh, kind of the challenges with regard to these conflicts that are happening around the world. Uh, in Ukraine, Russia comes to mind immediately, right? But there's always something or the other. But this suffering, especially if you have yogic training, meaning that you not need to be a yogi, but to be able to reduce your own or control your own anger, or to be able to share, to be able to um, be healthy. These are all, I hope someday we'll call it uh, a human right, uh, that everybody should have it to remain healthy and so on. And yoga provides tools for this, how to manage. doesn't matter when somebody is, uh, uh, you know, um, from whatever background. In America, unfortunately, yoga has become elitist. But truly, you can go to a grassland and then start doing yoga. You don't need a fancy $200 yoga mat with sensors. Okay, yes, that will help, but uh, it is not necessary. So that is one of the things that uh, why you would like to do from a social uh, perspective, a corporate social responsibility, if you like, in which we can take uh, yoga to minorities, wherein they have uh, problems that are like health problems. For example, if you look at our Hispanic brothers and sisters or African-American brothers and sisters, their rampant obesity, rampant uh, diabetes. These are the things that we can control using yogic methods. And it doesn't require a lot of things. You need to spend maybe 30, 40 minutes a day to uh, do that. You just, if, of course, you need to have the discipline. That is the health I'm talking about. That's the well-being part of it. It is not like uh, uh, it is preventative, okay? Rather than, uh, you know, um, uh, you once you have the disease, then to manage it. And yoga will help you manage that also. So this is completely focused on both the external well-being and the internal well-being of a person. That's what we want to, that's our message to the world, that we can provide you techniques for you to learn. And the last rapid fire quick question is, for the corporate world, for the business world, what is Vayu's promise to them? Well, uh, the, if you look at the corporate world, there are many elements that are very particular to um, the modern world, okay? Because we are not meant to sit in a chair for hours and hours and keep on uh, typing on our computers and so on. We are not built for that. We are built for going out, roaming, hunting, gathering, whatever, in agriculture. So the body has not adjusted to that. Probably it will take a very long time, multiple generations for doing that, if ever. So we are telling that there are techniques wherein a stressed executive, in a matter of 20 minutes, we can go through a sleeping technique called yoga nidra, in which they can get three hours of sleep. Okay, the amount of relaxation that you will get over three hours of sleep can be had for 20 minutes. There you are saving and increasing your bandwidth if that is what your goal is. Alternately, you have so much of stress in your life and how to relieve it. And there are techniques that can teach you and your employees that how to relieve this stress so that you have a better employee, you have an employee who's coming every day and doing the work rather than uh, taking sick days off. And that improves the corporate productivity and you'll have happier employees, more fulfilled ones. And we'll teach you techniques on how they could handle the daily uh, stresses and then to be able to uh, be uh, more uh, uh, healthful, uh, well, and productive. Sunadji, as you're talking about this, all this, of course, you have amazing content, but the big thing is your energy. Okay? 
for those of us who know you personally, you are traveling around the world. And when you're traveling or when you're not traveling, you are on Zoom calls, building your team, whether it is Vayu or Seva or umpteen other causes. So here's a very personal question I really want to know the answer to is what's your secret behind starting every day with excitement, passion to make an impact? Does Srinath ever get tired? Like, how do you do this? Um, I think it is the mission that drives. Okay. For example, we know that we want to take yoga to humanity. Okay. To the last person. So we know that that's a tall order. It will probably take multiple generations. Okay. Maybe 10. I don't care. But if you lay the foundation today, then, uh, you know, other people can build on it. So that is the hope. And mission is the one that drives me. Get up in the morning and say, okay, uh, I know there are uh, important things that I have to do today, uh, whether it is personal or professional, but I do keep that in mind that this is where we are going. And that's what the mission is the one that uh, gives the energy. Where we want to go is, of course, we know that we can build a harmonious world, healthy world through yoga. Okay. And, uh, you know, given those of uh, uh, people who practices regularly, not necessarily the ones who take it so seriously that it is their lifestyle, but to incorporate yoga in your lifestyle, okay, not to change your lifestyle to the extent that you are a different person, but you can do that too. But having that, you know, to be able to take uh, uh, whether it is the health advantages or it is the uh, mental peace and comfort that you can get by practicing yoga. And I think this should be every person, whoever can afford to spend 30 minutes uh, uh, a day should be able to have this. So that way we improve the entire world. It is not simply that you produce, produce and produce. There is no such thing as infinite growth. It cannot happen. We are in a finite world, as simple as that. You know, there won't be uh, over a thin layer of the earth. It is not filled with oil and infinite energy. The energy, infinite energy is coming from the nuclear reactor in the sky. So you absorb that and then you can thrive. And how can you lead your life? What is the quality of life? This is the one that uh, really drives me every day. How we can take this message and how we can get people to enjoy this. This is fascinating conversation on the, to wrap this thing up. I just want to ask you a very unique question. If Srinathji walks into a restaurant and meets two other people, one is a 17-year-old baby Srinath and this wise 100-year-old Srinath who still is impacting and you catch him between two amazing non-profit meetings. What would that conversation between you, the 17-year-old Srinath and the 100-year-old Srinath look like? I would think that uh, the 100 year old has a lot of wisdom and the 17 year old who is curious, okay? Maybe sometimes self-observed, but curious nonetheless. Uh, if the 17 year old asks, what is the secret of uh, what or how to be happy? Because I think uh, fundamentally, everybody wants to be happy. People are happy getting divorced. People are happy getting married. People are happy getting uh, children and see them grow uh, and all that stuff, right? You know, so happiness can come from divorce, happiness can come from marriage. So the 17 year old, so what is the, how can I be happy? That's really what I would think a 17 year old would ask. A uh, hundred year old with all the experience, he said that, you know, um, you have ups and downs in life. There is no way that you can be happy all the time. It is a myth. It is a unicorn, not, not gonna, you're not gonna see it, but, the important thing is um, focus on a mission. Whatever it is at the time that is you feel important, whatever your heart tells you, do it. That's what a 100-year-old would tell the 17-year-old. Okay. Uh, if it is a middle-aged Srinath meeting a 100-year-old, uh, the uh, middle-aged Srinath is uh, so focused that sometimes neglects things, be it uh, at a personal level, 
like one's own health, okay? Or, uh, uh, you know, uh, in those cases, then the 100-year-old would advise, take a little bit care for yourself also, Love not that. just the mission that you're doing. Love that. This is a fascinating conversation. I truly appreciate you taking time today. Any final thoughts that we haven't covered? And of course, I asked you every question you answered. So if you have any questions for me, it would be an honor to answer it. Yeah, and uh, with YU, uh, we have currently two programs, a master's, online master's, and a hybrid PhD, okay? And uh, this is what I believe is the foundation because there are multiple things about wellness that YU is pursuing. We, it, uh, uh, from an academic point, uh, point of view, be it for corporate social responsibility point of view, be it from the point of view of research, exploring new things. And uh, that's why it is. And if uh, people who are excited about learning more about yoga, this will be a, a fascinating journey that we can promise you. And uh, uh, something that you can learn from the confines of your own home. And, uh, uh, you know, with flexible timings, we also have synchronous interactions weekly with uh, professors and these are people who are teaching at MIT, teaching at uh, Harvard and uh, some of the, uh, the most well-known yogis in the world, people who are academics and we are bringing them all together. Okay, and we are offering this. I think uh, people should uh, learn and take advantage of it and we hope you'll be able to contribute not, not only to the uh, corporate world, uh, to the society in general, that's what we believe why you uh, will have to go after. So thank you for this wonderful conversation, Arjun. And uh, I, you know, uh, I really had looked at your other podcasts uh, previously, but I never imagined myself to be on one. And thank you for the opportunity. And to me, this is truly an honor. And I was doing a lot of other podcasts to get ready for this one. So thank you again. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.